The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the second chapter and the first two words of the 19th verse. Now, therefore, the first two words of the 19th verse of the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Now, therefore, in other words, we arrive at a point in our consideration of this second chapter of this great epistle at which the apostle, having completed, in a sense, his main statement is summarizing, pausing for a moment to gather up the various things that he has been saying. And as he does so, it is very important for us to do so. There is always a danger when one deals with a great uh, section of scripture such as this, that uh, in dealing with the various details, as we have been doing and as one must of necessity do, one may very well uh, lose the main drift or the main argument of the section. So it is very important that we should from time to time, even as the Apostle himself suggests to us, pause for a moment and consider what we've been discovering and what we have been saying. Now, we must remind ourselves, therefore, that the great object the Apostle has in the whole chapter is to show this marvelous and wonderful thing that has happened, namely that... Uh, these Gentiles, the Ephesians and others, were now members of the Christian church side by side with the Jews. It is, beyond any question, the most amazing thing that has ever happened in the world amongst men. It was one of those things that uh, all would have thought on general principles was quite impossible and could never happen. But it has happened. And the Apostle is so concerned that these Ephesians should not only know that it had happened, as they did know in their experiences, but that they should also know how it had happened and what brought it about. And his great statement is that this is the result of the manifestation of the power of God. And it's a power that is as great as this. It's the same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Nothing less than that could ever have done it. But it has done it. It has raised us up when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Not only that, but it has done this other thing. It has brought the Jew and Gentile together. Now he summed that up in a sense in that 18th verse that we've been considering. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. What a tremendous thing this is. Now then, I say it is important that we should look at this now for a moment as a whole. We've been taken through the steps. He's, he's shown us exactly how God has done this through the Lord Jesus Christ, how the middle wall of partition, namely that law of commandments in ordinances, how that's been fulfilled completely by him, and the middle wall of partition has been demolished. And therefore there is this entry, this access, 
into the presence of God. And how exactly this happens in the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. But the great thing I say for us to bear in mind is this great matter of unity. This unity that uh, therefore uh, exists between all who are truly Christian. That's the thing that the apostle had uppermost in his mind. This one body, this one new man, we both have access by one spirit and so on. It's this, this is the thing that he's so anxious that we should all be clear about. And therefore it is good for us to notice together in general like this what it is that constitutes this unity, what, what, what makes it, what brings it into being and keeps it going. Very well then, we are face to face with one of these great and crucial and glorious statements in the scripture. Now, in looking at this, certain great principles, it seems to me, will become manifest and obvious to us. Here is one, for instance. You can't consider a passage like this without being reminded again very clearly as to what a Christian is and as to what makes us Christian. In showing how these Ephesians had been brought into the church with the Jew, the apostle shows what had to happen to the Jew and to the Christian before either of them could ever have come into the church, before either of them could ever go into the presence of God. Now he's been telling us all that. So that here I say, incidentally, we are brought back again to this bedrock, this foundational position. We see clearly what it is that makes us Christian. And therefore we are given a very wonderful definition of the Christian. Another thing that we are shown is this. That nothing else can ever bring men together truly. But this, but this gospel. Now, I say we discover that in this way. The apostle, in expounding and in showing how this wonderful unity has been brought about, has incidentally shown us what had to be done before that could be done, before this could be brought to pass. And as we have an insight into the things that divide men and women, I say we are driven and forced to this conclusion that nothing but this power of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit in the gospel, nothing but this can ever really bring men and women together. Now, this is surely a very important thing for us to bear in mind at the present time. And when I say that, I'm thinking partly of the church and I'm also thinking of the whole general international situation. There is so much false and glib and superficial talk about unity in the church and amongst the nations. And as I understand the teaching of scripture, and especially of this particular section, there is nothing that is quite so dangerous and in the end so fatuous and so completely futile 
as all this vague and general talk of bringing people together and establishing what is called a unity. Now, we have to recognize that there are times when there appears to be a unity. But it's only a superficial unity. It's only an appearance. Sometimes, because of certain circumstances, people get together. They're driven together, perhaps, by a common need or by a common danger. And there they are, talking to one another and cooperating and working together. But that is not of necessity a true unity, as history shows very plainly and very clearly. There may be approaches between men or amongst nations or different sections of the Christian church for specific objects. And superficial people say, ah, at last, the enmity has been abolished and we're all one. But a community of interest for the time being is not a real unity. You read your secular history books and watch what the nations have done. Notice how there have been strange combinations of different nations at different times. And it looked at the time as if they really had formed a firm friendship which could never be dissolved. And they praise one another and they fraternize and they visit one another and so on. And people say, ah, at last it's happened. But then you go on a few pages in your history book and you find these two nations that seem to have become one fighting one another. What's the explanation? Well, it's just this. When they appear to be in a firm friendship, it was just that circumstances were such in the case of both the nations that it paid them and it suited them to come together. You've often had that during a war. There may be a sudden common enemy arising, and the others, who really don't like one another and have always been opposed, because of this common danger, they'll work together in order to keep that enemy down. But then the moment they've done that, they begin quarreling with one another. What appeared to be unity wasn't unity. It was a facade. It was a mere appearance. Now, that isn't real unity. Now, exactly the same thing applies in the realm of the church. And all these are very live problems, as you realize, at this present hour. There are those who seem to think and to say that face to face with the great enemy, materialism, call it communism if you like, that all must come together who call themselves Christian in any shape or form, that we mustn't be particular about definitions and so on, but that we must call, form a common front against this one great enemy. There are those, therefore, who would say that uh, Roman Catholics and Protestants should work together and be one, forget all their differences and so on, and that we should all stand together to defend Western civilization or whatever it may chance to be called against this great common foe. And they think that that's unity. Now my contention is that the teaching of this paragraph without going any further shows us how superficial and how futile in the last analysis all such talk is. If we have grasped the teaching of this section which gives us an insight into man's nature in sin and the things which rarely divide people fundamentally, 
then I think we must be driven to this conclusion that nothing but a fundamental solution such as is offered by the gospel alone and by nothing else can ever really produce this true and well and durable unity. That becomes clear, I think. Then another thing that becomes clear is this. We are given an understanding of and an insight into the nature of this true unity that exists amongst Christians. The whole point, I say, is that it is only those who conform to the description given here who really are one. And we are given an insight into the nature of that unity. The Apostle has been talking about it in terms of one body. This marvelous analogy of the body which he so frequently uses. It's a vital, it's an organic unity. It isn't simply people loosely attached to one another. It isn't simply people for the time being forgetting differences and forming a kind of coalition. Not at all. It's a life unity. It's the unity that obtains in the body. The way in which the fingers are joined to the rest of the body. Not just stuck on, but a living unity. A unity of blood and of nerves. It's something that is a whole having various parts. Not a number of parts put together to make a whole. You start at the center and work outwards instead of vice versa. Very well, I say, that becomes clear. Perhaps I can summarize it all by putting it like this. That the unity amongst Christians is a unity which is quite inevitable because of that which is true of each and every one. Now, I sometimes think that that is the most important principle of all. With all this talk about unity, it seems to me we are forgetting the most important thing, which is this. That unity is not something that man has to produce or to arrange. The unity between true Christians is inevitable. Unavoidable, you can't help it. It isn't man's creation. It is, as we've been shown so clearly, the creation of the Holy Spirit himself. And my contention is that there is a unity at the moment amongst true Christians. I don't care what labels they've got on them. But the unity, I say, is inevitable. You can't avoid it. Because of that which has become true of every single individual Christian. Well, now then, let me try to show you how these principles uh, are stated here in detail. We start with this great postulate that men by nature, men because of their backgrounds, are hopelessly divided amongst themselves. We've been shown it here in terms of the Jew and the Gentile and the deep and the violent prejudices that they both had. That's man in sin. Man in sin is a mass of prejudices. And because all men are in sin and have these prejudices, disunion, disunity is inevitable. And 
The Jew despised the Gentile, and the Gentile hated the Jew. And there was a middle wall of partition. And the world is still full of that kind of thing. Racial prejudices. People don't hesitate to dismiss whole nations and to condemn them and to speak of them with sarcasm and scorn. And the other nations do exactly the same with them. It's true of classes. It's true of groups. The whole of humanity is divided up in this way. Now, this isn't something superficial. This is something deep down in the life of man. It's elemental. It's something, in a sense, which is beyond the control of men. He tries to control it. He puts on a veneer of gentlemanliness or of politeness. He may smile at somebody whom he is cursing in his heart at the same time. We put on the show, and appearances are kept up, but beneath it, there is enmity and disunion, and the mere fact that people are smiling and shaking hands doesn't tell you anything of necessity about their hearts. They may issue their communiques, and yet they're planning and plotting to file one another and to do various things to one another at the same time. Well, we're all familiar with this. The whole so-called art of politics, local or imperial or international, is based upon this very supposition that you can't trust anybody. And you just keep your eye on your own best interests. You make concession when, when it suits you and so on. Well, now, that's the whole of mankind. And that's true, I say, on the individual level, exactly as it is on the international level. And it, it isn't merely to be a tyro in these matters and to be innocent and uninstructed and illiterate in the knowledge of history uh, to assume that appearances are what they are. It is, I say, profoundly dangerous. In other words, we come back to this. Before there can be unity amongst men, there must be a radical change in them. There must be a change in their very fundamental constitutions. What needs to be changed in every one of us in sin is our fundamental prejudices. Not what we do on the surface for the sake of negotiation of our appearances. No, no, but what we really are, what we really believe in the depths. And until that is put right, it is idle and a sure waste of time to speak about unity. Very well, then. What is it that the gospel does in order to produce true unity? How would these Jews and Gentiles come together? Why are all who are truly Christian of necessity one? Well, here are some of the answers. We are all sinners. And nothing but the gospel brings people to see that. We are all sinners, every one of us. And I'll go further. We are all equally sinners. Because you see, what determines whether you're a sinner or not is not to add up the number of sins you're committed. It is your total attitude towards God. Now, it's here we see how futile all superficial distinctions and divisions are. 
You see, that was the kind of thing that had kept the Jew and the Gentile apart. The Jew said, we are the people of God, and we've got the scriptures, the oracles of God, and we've got the law, and we've got the ceremonial, and we've got the temple. These other people haven't. And they thought that that put them right, that it made a vital difference. But the whole purpose of the preaching of the gospel, says Paul, is to show the Jew that he is as much a sinner as is the Gentile. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. The whole world lieth guilty before God. Now, you see at that point how entirely superficial and what a waste of time it is to indulge in our divisions between very bad people, bad people, good people, very good people, noble people. Those are our classifications, aren't they? Oh, yes, we said so-and-so, of course, he's a sinner, he's an outsider, look at him. But then somebody else is very respectable, very nice, and very good. And we really attach significance to these divisions and distinctions. The moment you come to this gospel, it's all demolished. Completely irrelevant. Because the test, after all, is not what we are amongst ourselves and according to our measures and standards. Every one of us has got to come before God. And face to face with God, we are all sinful and we are all vile. We don't know him. We haven't served him as we ought. We've broken his laws. Each one has gone his own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. Oh, of course, we understand this perfectly well in the natural realm, don't we? But we somehow seem to fail to apply it in the realm of the spiritual. We've got our standards for measuring light and the power of light and so on. We talk about voltage and wattage and things like that. And there are these divisions and distinctions. Shall I put on a 150 watt lamp or shall I put on a 50? What a difference. The difference seems to be tremendous and important. But bring the two, the 15 and the 150 and put them before the sun. And your little differences don't matter at all. It doesn't matter whether you've got a taper or a candle or a very powerful light. When you come to the sun, they're all darkness, as it were. And they're irrelevant and they don't count at all. Well, now, it's like that in the spiritual realm. We're all face to face with God. And when I stand in the presence of God and his holiness and his law... It doesn't help me to see or to think that I'm perhaps a little bit less bad than somebody else. The question is, am I good enough for him? Am I good enough there? And you see what this gospel has done is that it's shown men God and themselves in the light of God. And they're all condemned. They're all under a common denominator. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Barbarian nor Scythian, bond nor free, wealthy nor poor, educated or ignorant, all these things are irrelevant, black nor white, one curtain or another curtain, it doesn't matter, all of sin. That's the first step in unity. 
Before there can be unity, we've all got to be brought down to the dust. While any one of us is standing on his feet, as it were, and asserting himself, he'll never get unity. Because he's boasting of something. He's holding on to something that's peculiar to him. He'll never get unity like that. We must be, we must come to the end of this self. And here, facing God in the gospel, we are brought to the dust. We are reduced to our utter sinfulness. And we see exactly where we are one by one in the presence of God. That's the first thing. But that, of course, leads inevitably to the second thing, which is this, that not only are we all equally sinful, but we're all equally helpless. Now that was the difficulty of the Jew, wasn't it? He didn't realize his helplessness. He thought that his knowledge of the law somehow or another was going to save him. But he came to see that it couldn't. As the apostle puts it there in the third chapter of Romans, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Certainly very valuable in that respect. I have not known sin, says Paul, except the law said thou shalt not covet. It pinpoints the thing. The law is of inestimable value in that respect. Yes, but the foolish Jew had thought that his mere knowledge of the law somehow saved him, but it didn't. The law simply condemns. It doesn't help to save. Now, this is so vital to the, to the whole argument of this apostle and to the whole argument of the gospel everywhere. Listen to him saying it again in Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns him in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now there it is once and forever. We are all not only sinners together, but we are all equally helpless in our sin. We may try with a great resolve or with tremendous willpower to be better. It avails us nothing. There are people who may lead a very select, abstemious and noble kind of life. They may give themselves to perfecting themselves and to raising themselves in the moral scale. But I say how futile it all is we've got to arrive at God. It's no use boasting about the relative horsepowers of your motor cars when you're confronted by a mountain that your most powerful car can never climb or, or which can never bring you to the top. And that's the position of men in sin. It doesn't matter how great a man's moral striving may be. In and of himself, he can never bring himself to satisfy God and his demands. No man can stand in the judgment simply in his own righteousness and by his own efforts. We all, when we realize this, must say, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin. Could not atone. 
We are one in our helplessness, in our weakness, in our hopelessness, in our ineffectiveness. We are all together on the ground. Now, it's this that brings unity when people realize that. Before on their feet, one said, I'm better than you are. I've gone further than you are, lying helpless in the dust. We realize that we have nothing to boast of. We have nothing to talk about. We are all silenced together. The competition is abolished. Negatively, we are all in the same position. And that, of course, leads to the other thing that the Apostle has been emphasizing. We all have come to the one and the same Savior. Oh, how he delights to repeat the name. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You see how he repeats it at once? For he is our peace who hath made both one. He has abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, for to make in himself of twain one new man, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross. And he came and preached peace, for through him we both have access. It's always this blessed person. Now, you see, we're beginning to look at it positively. We're all in the dust and on the ground and in our ashes and our rags together. And we lift up our eyes and we look together at the same blessed person. I'm not interested in a world congress of faiths. I can't. Kneel down together and look up with people, one of whom's looking at Confucius, and another at Mohammed, and another at the Buddha, and another at some philosopher. I can't. There's only one to look at. It's this blessed Son of God. And I have no unity and no fellowship with any man who isn't looking with me together at the same Savior. There is one God, and one mediator, and one mediator only between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Oh, there is no unity apart from this. We are together in failure and hopelessness. And now I say, we are looking together to the same blessed person. And if we are not, I say, what is the value of talking about unity? What's the value of talking about having things in common and that we're all one? If there's any question about him, is he son of God or is he only man? If there's doubt about it, there's no unity, there's no fellowship. We confess that there is only one Savior, one only Lord Jesus Christ, God and men, two natures, in one person, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, risen again. No, no, there must be no question about him. There's no unity unless we are agreed about him. The same Savior, the same person. Oh, yes, and the same salvation. You've got to particularize, you see. It isn't enough to say, oh, yes, I believe in Christ, and I'm one with all who believe in Christ, but what's believing in Christ mean? Well, you notice how this man puts it. 
He says that he were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. It's the only way. And I am not nigh to a man unless he's been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. I have no fellowship and no union with a man who doesn't like the theology of blood. He can tell me if he likes that he believes in Christ. But I know no Christ except the Christ who had to die for me and for my sins upon the cross. I have no access to the Father except by the blood of Jesus. And a man who can bypass the cross is a man with whom I'm not in fellowship. I care not what he calls himself. There is no unity except those who belong to the blood-bought company. It's the same salvation. The cross inevitable. The cross central. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. God says Paul again in that third of Romans must be just as well as the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. I cannot believe in a God who can wink at sin and pretend he hasn't seen it. No, God is holy and just and righteous, and he has said he will punish sin, and he must, and I believe he has in Christ there on that cross. It is the Christ of the cross. The Christ who literally rose in the body from the grave and ascended to heaven for my justification. Oh, my friend, I'm only one with those who are clothed with the same robe of righteousness, which is Christ's righteousness. There is no unity when people have these different clothings. One with his own righteousness, another with the righteousness of some philosophy, and another with the righteousness of Christ. No, we are one with all those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and were clothed immaculate with the righteousness of the Son of God. That's the argument not only here, it is the argument everywhere. We share a common salvation. That's the word that is used, you remember, in the epistle of Jude. But let me hurry on. All these things are common to all Christians. Furthermore, we have the same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And living within us. And working within us. And doing exactly the same work in us. You see, the apostle has already mentioned him. It is by one Spirit we have this access of ours unto the Father. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you, the same God, the same Holy Spirit. You see how organic unity is. You see how different all this is from saying superficially, let's all come together. There's a common enemy. Now let's all forget our differences. My dear friend, we need to be changed radically. It's our natures that cause the division. And anything that doesn't deal with the nature cannot possibly solve the problem. And all this is necessary to change our natures. The Holy Spirit must come. And he has come. The same Holy Spirit in us all. And producing in us, and this is perhaps 
in many ways the most wonderful thing of all, he produces the same new nature in us all. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He isn't a man who's improved himself a bit, holds the reins tightly here and there, puts on a bit of varnish and veneer, not at all. He's a new man. He's been made a partaker of the divine nature. And the divine nature is one of love. And how can you get unity unless there's love? But the Holy Spirit produces this new man, this new nature, this new everything, the fruit of the Spirit. And they're in all Christians, so you have inevitable unity. All Christians are born of the Spirit. Born of the same Spirit. Ye must be born again, said Christ to Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And this is absolutely essential. Men can never be one unless they all have this same common nature. In Christ we have it. In him, you see, he has, he has made of one of twain one new man, so making peace. This new humanity of his. And so, with this new nature, this new fundamental disposition within us, we who are Christian have the same interests. We are concerned about the same thing. We've got the same desires. So that when we meet one another at once, we find that we've got this community of interest and of desire. It's not difficult to find something to talk about when you meet a Christian. No, no, you've got the same interest. You recognize him almost by looking into his eyes, and he begins to speak. Ah, you know him at once. And you're talking about the same things, these spiritual matters. No longer talking about the world and its gaudy, superficial, passing way. No, but about eternal interests. The soul and God and Christ and salvation and the rebirth and all these things, they meet together and they talk together. That's how they're described in the Old Testament and in the New. These people know one another. They're drawn to one another. They understand one another. They don't need elaborate introductions. They at once get onto these common topics. And they're animated by the same desires and by the same great wishes. You see how inevitable unity is amongst Christians? And then all that brings us to this. That we have the same Father. For through him or by him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You see, we belong to one another because we belong to God. We are children of the same father. Now, members of a family may disagree and quarrel at times, but you know there's a fundamental unity at the back of it all, isn't there? That's the difference between the true unity amongst Christians and this artificially produced union, which the world and the church, alas, talk so much about at the present time. You may look at members of a family and you say, they hate one another, look at them quarreling. You try and get in between them and you'll find they're one. Why, there's a blood unity. 
They belong to the same family, the same father. Ah, yes, they've got a right, as it were. They have freedom to disagree, but there's this basic thing. Whereas these other people who seem to be so at one on the surface, beneath and in the heart, there's nothing solid and it doesn't last and it collapses in the hour of the greatest need. We have one father, we are children of the same heavenly king, and therefore we've got the same essential family interests. But for me to close, let me just give you some of the remaining headings. Not only is all this true of us all as Christians, but you know we have the same trials. We have the same, same temptations. We have the same problems. And oh, how this sometimes makes one realize the unity more than anything else. When you think you're alone in your troubles and trials and tribulations, and you come to the house of God like the men in the 73rd Psalm did, and you realize at once, well, at any rate, I'm not alone in this. You meet somebody else and he begins to tell you, I've been having an awful time. And you say, what's been happening to you? And he tells you the very thing that's been happening to you the same week. Oh yes, because we are spiritual. Because we have this new nature, we've got the same enemy, the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And they attack us all in the same way. So we understand, we bear one another's burdens. We sympathize with one another. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to men. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. We're all sharing in the same battle, the same fight against the principalities and powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. But thank God, in the fight we experience the same grace, the same deliverance, the same saviour, the same guide and mentor and friend, the same experiences of grace. And finally, we are all marching and going together to the same eternal home. As Christians, we realize, as nobody else can realize, that this is but a passing world, this is but a preparatory school, this is not our home, we are marching to heaven, to glory. We've got the same hope set before us. There may be differences here, differences of nationality, differences of gifts, different in appearance, different in a thousand and one ways, yes, but we're all going to the same place to the same eternity and the same glory, the same God, the same heaven, the same spirits of just men made perfect. We've got our eye on the same recompense of the reward. Don't you now agree that my propositions at the beginning were justified? There is no such thing as unity except in people of whom these things are true. No other unity, so-called, is of any value. But at the same time, we must add that anything which is allowed to divide people of whom these things are true is sinful. So that for myself, I care not what a man's label is. 
The people whom I know and in whom I am interested are the people of whom these things are true. I am not interested in their country, in their color, in their gifts, abilities, possessions, or any other label that the world of men may attach to. If a man tells me that he has realized and knows that he's a hopeless, vile, condemned, damned sinner, and that he relies only on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ died for his sins, that his body was broken and his blood shed for his sins, that he trusts only to that atoning, reconciling work of Christ, That Christ was his substitute. And that God in Christ by the Spirit has made a new man of him and given him a new nature. I am one with such a man. I belong to him and he belongs to me. And I will not allow anything finally to separate us. And as I say, it seems more and more to be sinful that we do allow anything to separate us. Is it right that such people should be diluted amongst the various denominations as they are, I wonder, and attached to people with whom they have nothing fundamentally in common but simply tradition? True unity is this unity of the spirit, this unity of the new nature, This unity that is in Christ and him crucified. The unity of his blood. The unity of the Lord himself. Oh, may God, in his infinite grace, give us ability to see these things. The unity of the Spirit. The only true bond of peace. Thank God. That all who belong to him, born of his spirit, are his and are one. In spite of all our blindness and our sinfulness and our failure to implement such a glorious truth. Amen.